Hi, everybody. I am really excited to be here with you guys today. My husband actually attended Prairie. Um, he graduated back in the early 2000s because we're old. Um, but uh, he loved his time here. He was in the music program here at Prairie. And I have lots of friends who attended here who are still connected here. So it's really fun for me to be here with you today. Like was mentioned, I am originally from the States. I grew up in Minnesota. Um, all the way through university, and then I escaped the terrible winters, and I moved to Colorado, which is a wonderful place to be. Colorado is amazing. I loved my time there. And while I was in Colorado, I met this guy who was in town visiting a friend, and he lived in some place I had never heard of called Red Deer, Alberta. Fast forward about 10 years, we are married, we have three little children, I am officially a Canadian citizen somehow, and I have been tricked into living somewhere with terrible winters yet again. <laughs> so, life comes at you fast. <laughs> I was really grateful to get to come speak to you today as you guys go through this series on the fruit of the Spirit. And really it was kind of for selfish reasons because this gave me a chance to do some studying and some meditating on the work that the Spirit needs to do in my own life. So today we're going to start with looking at love, which is that first fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5. By the way, my kids could recite the whole list of the fruit of the Spirit to you. And this is not because I'm an amazing mom who's really good at teaching my kids to memorize scripture. It's because there are so many kids' songs dedicated to helping kids learn the fruit of the Spirit. And it's probably because you can do some fun things with videos and with lyrics because the fruit of the Spirit's not a coconut and the fruit of the Spirit's not a cherry. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. So they could tell you, they could come teach this lesson for us. But when we look at Galatians 5, when we look at this chapter that lists the fruit of the Spirit, we quickly realize that the work that the Spirit wants to do in us is anything but childish. If we are going to love the way that God wants us to, it's going to take great maturity and great wisdom and actually quite a bit of discipline from us. Love is this first one on the list, and it's likely not a coincidence. One of my favorite theologians is a man named Christopher Wright, and he says that this love is probably first on the list because it kind of undergirds or encompasses all the rest. So we can't be peaceful and patient and kind people if we don't first have love. And Paul kind of alludes to this. If you look at Galatians 5 and you see all the things he talks about, Paul talks about how love is, is us being faithful in loving one another. And actually, we need to love our neighbors as ourselves. Love is what holds all of this up for us. So if love is undergirding all the rest of the fruits of the Spirit, then if the entire law of God is fulfilled in the command to love one another, it's pretty important for us to define it correctly, to understand exactly what love is and what love means. So, love can be a tricky word to define. We talk about how we love our spouse, our significant other. We talk about how we love our friends or our pet or that new pair of jeans we got. 
The culture talks a lot about love. Love is love. Well, what does that mean? And what does that look like practically? So this morning, I want to spend a bit of time defining what love might mean for us. And whenever we're trying to figure something out, if we're going to the scripture and we're trying to figure out what God wants for us, I always think it's important to start with God himself, with who God is and what God is like. So that's what we're going to do. And we're going to start in the Old Testament, because whether you like it or not, I love it. I think it's important for us. So... In Exodus 34, God reveals himself to Moses. He passes in front of Moses, and he tells him this. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. The word for love there is that Hebrew word chesed. I'm not going to do the whole thing for us today, but that's how it should be pronounced. It's the word chesed. English, in our English Bibles, we often translate that word as love or maybe loving kindness. Um, We see it all the time in the Psalms, right? The love of the Lord, the chesed of the Lord endures forever. To define the word chesed as love, it's not quite as precise as it needs to be because this this word actually encompasses quite a bit more. It's this, this deep commitment, this loyal, covenantal love that God has for us. Sometimes this kind of love, it might relate to how God feels emotionally for his people. It might relate to his feelings for his people. But often, chesed is more about God's steadfast commitment. This, he's not going to give up on us loyal love that he has. Now, this whole section in the book of Exodus is quite interesting because before this, before God passes in front of Moses, in Exodus 19 and 20, you have God coming down on Mount Sinai to make a covenant with his people. This is when he's going to start to give them the law. And we don't have time to go into all of the details of what that looked like, but I'll tell you this, that when God and Israel meet at Mount Sinai, really what we see happening between the two of them is a wedding. God and Israel are getting married to one another. They're making a covenant with each other. They're being bonded together. And in doing this, they're committed for life and beyond. And then you get just a few chapters later in Exodus 32, and Israel, God's people, basically on their honeymoon, are already cheating on him. They make a golden calf, They start to worship it. They immediately break the vows that they made to God, not to have any other gods before him, not to make any graven images. When the people do this, God is quite angry with them. But eventually, he comes back to his covenant faithfulness, his chesed for his people. At this point, God does not feel in love with the Israelites. He's not overcome with any kind of positive emotion for them. And in his love for them, God doesn't condone what they did. He doesn't say, you know what? You can do whatever you want, and because I love you, I'll accept you. They still have to live up to God's standards. However, God has made a commitment, and because of this, he will be faithful even when the Israelites are not. His love... His chesed, really his commitment to his own character, 
is going to save Israel, even though they don't deserve it. When I was in seminary in Colorado, I had a friend who does what I think a lot of Christian college and seminary students do. He got a Hebrew tattoo. So he got the word chesed tattooed on the back of his calf. And he did it as a reminder to himself that although he's often someone who's, who's running away from God, God stays true to his loyal character and his chesed chases after him, always willing to welcome him back. What's interesting to me now is that that friend of mine is currently very, very far from the Lord. He's abandoned all of his beliefs. He no longer is living for Jesus. In fact, he's living in, in opposition to the way of Jesus. And yet I always think about chesed, how it's still on his calf, still tattooed on his body, a reminder that God has not forgotten about him. God has not forsaken or abandoned him. God has chesed for him. The Lord will welcome him back anytime if he just turns around. And that same thing is true for us. God's commitment and his faithful to us, faithfulness to us remains even when we fail him, because he stays true even when we don't. And that is an encouraging note for us today. And we can say gratefully, along with the psalmist, let all who fear the Lord repeat, the chesed of the Lord endures forever. The second aspect or definition of love that's really important to who God is and what God has done is the main Hebrew word for love, which is the word ahava, ahav to love. I used to sit under a teacher a lot um, named Ray Vanderlaan, and Ray knows a lot about the culture of the Bible, the culture of the ancient Near East. Um, he studied a lot with Jewish rabbis, and he's learned a lot of their techniques. And one of the techniques that the rabbis use as they study scripture is something that they call first use. So if they're studying the scripture and they come across a passage and a word that they can't quite figure out in its context, they go back to the very first time that word is used in the Bible. And they say, okay, maybe if we see where this word is first used, it can help us define that word throughout the rest of the scripture so that we understand what it might mean, what it might be telling, telling us. If you go to Genesis chapter 22, that's the very first time we see the main word for love, ahava, used in all of scripture. God is speaking to Abraham about Isaac, this son that he has waited for for so long. And he tells him, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Now, there's all kinds of interesting things in this chapter, all kinds of questions we could ask. What's Abraham thinking here? What does he know about God's character? What doesn't he know about God's character? What did the gods of the people around Abraham require of their worshipers? There's all kinds of questions we could ask that we're not going to. We don't have time. Ultimately, though, Abraham decides that he's going to do what God has asked. God steps in. He saves Isaac. Abraham proves himself faithful to God. God proves himself faithful to Abraham. But what's most useful to us here 
is that first use of the word love in the whole Bible. Because the way it's defined, the very first time it's used, the way it's best understood, is that love is a father who is willing to sacrifice his son. And that brings us to Jesus, God in the flesh. Jesus is famously asked in Matthew 22 about what he believes the greatest commandment to be. And he affirms what everyone already knows. It's what they call the Shema, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might. And then Jesus weighs in on an argument that's, that's going on between some of the Pharisees, because there are some Pharisees who believe the second greatest commandment is to honor the Sabbath, that God finds the Sabbath really important, and that we need to obey that. And there are other Pharisees who say, actually, we think the second greatest commandment is that little verse found in Leviticus 19, that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Jesus sides with the latter. He says, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus says, we are to obey that greatest commandment, love God with everything that we are, because God has first loved us. He has shown us his loyal love. And then the second thing that we are to do is to love our neighbors as ourselves. When Jesus takes a side in this argument, he's telling us that love, an active and a sacrificial love, is supremely important to our God. And then Jesus goes on to show us exactly what that sacrificial love looks like. Because as we know, God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. And that first use of love, way back in Genesis 22, a father who is willing to sacrifice his son, comes to its full meaning, comes to its perfect definition at the cross. It's there that father, son, and spirit work together out of their great love for us to bring us salvation and to bring us a way back into relationship with the father. So as we can see from this quick little biblical survey we did, God's definition of love involves chesed and ahava. It involves this loyalty, this commitment, this faithfulness. It involves sacrifice. He shows us these things in himself. And then Ephesians 5 says this, we are to walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. I don't know how that makes you feel, but it makes me feel a bit overwhelmed because I can look at all the ways God shows us his perfect love in the scripture, and then I quickly realize that I fail at loving the way God does each and every day. I never, ever, ever live up to this standard. And yet, we just read Ephesians 5. We are clearly called to imitate God, to imitate Christ. We are to allow the Spirit to grow the fruit of love in us. There's lots of things we could look at, lots of things we could study, figure out different ways to practice this. I'm just going to point out two things, two suggestions that I think will just start to move us in the right direction when it comes to love. 
The first way that we allow the Spirit to grow the fruit of love in us would be by us simply recognizing that as followers of Jesus, we do not belong to ourselves. We're not our own. I was recently in a book club that we read a book called this, You Are Not Your Own. It was by a professor named Alan Noble. And this book takes kind of a deep dive into our current culture and into all of the ways that we as a, as a people are encouraged to believe, sometimes overtly and sometimes subtly, that we belong to ourselves. We see this in non-Christian culture, but we see it in Christian culture too. And we feel some of this pressure when we come to college. We need to figure out what we're going to major in, what our career is going to be, who we're going to marry. Is ring by spring still a thing? That was a thing when, when I was in college. So we have to figure all this out, right? There's a pressure to know who we are and then to pursue those goals because ultimately that's what's going to make us happy because we belong to ourselves. This book talks about how even though this is what's pushed in our culture, it doesn't seem to be working very well for us because especially in North America, instead of this making us really happy, all these pursuits and all of these constant decisions are actually making us kind of anxious and dissatisfied. So the remedy, he suggests, is for us to truly and deeply understand that we are not our own, but we belong to Christ. It's not a new concept. It comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, which was written way back in the 1500s. But when we truly are, start to understand this, when we internalize that we don't belong to ourselves, it should really start to change our perspective on everything. It changes how we might think about our choices during college. If I'm not my own, then I'm actually going to start thinking about my community. What does my community need in order to flourish? Maybe that should start to direct my decisions when it comes to a career. Maybe if I'm not my own, then I'm going to love and I'm going to serve my neighbor simply because I want to honor and please my master, King Jesus. If we're going to love the way that God actually wants us to love, it's not going to be easy. And often it's not even going to be fruitful. That's what we want in our culture. We want something that's going to produce results. Love does not always do that. If you really take the time to love your enemy, whatever that might look like in your world, whoever your enemy might be, that does not mean that they will love you back. If you love your neighbor as yourself, it might not result in their salvation. It might not result in a really fruitful friendship. It might never result in them being willing to do anything for you. Love is not always fruitful, but that's okay. Because you're not your own. You belong to Christ. And Christ has asked you to belong to his body, to other believers, to your classmates, your professors, your families, your churches. We belong to one another. We belong to him. We're not our own. God has freed us from our slavery to sin in order that we might serve him instead. 
We're not set free just to do whatever we want. We're set free so that we can serve a good and true and loving master. And as we belong to him, we're asked to do this step-by-step work of allowing the Spirit to make us more like him and to help us love the way that he does. So we have this mental recognition that, that we don't belong to ourselves, and that starts to change the way that we think about things. And then we need some practical action. And my suggestion for us today, especially in our North American world, especially over what we've seen in the last couple years, I think one of the most practical things that we can do as believers is to show one another love through our commitment to unity. For a lesson on this, we need to take a look at the writings of the Apostle John. John is fascinating to me. If you read his books, you read the Gospel of John, you read 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he does not shut up about love. It, it gets a little bit old. You're like, okay, John, we understand your point here. I always picture John among the disciples kind of as like the hippie. He, the disciples are an interesting group because it, when you see them come together, they actually have a lot of different theological beliefs and they have a lot of different political beliefs. And so this group easily could have had a lot of trouble getting along. You have Simon who's a zealot, which means that he wants to go to war with Rome. He wants to defeat his enemies. He wants to fight fire with fire. Then you have Peter, who's busy chopping off people's ears in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's ready to go to war as well. And then you have John. And walking around, I picture like his long flowing hair and kind of a John Lennon kind of a look. <laughs> and he's just out here, man, can we all just love one another? This is John. Love, 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 love. He's our love expert. So when you turn to 1 John, in our Bibles, over and over, he is harping on this fact that we need to love one another and we need to do it through unity, through being united with each other. Dear friends, continue to love one another, he pleads. If you don't love, you actually don't know God. If we do love our brothers and sisters, it proves that we have passed from death to life. Loving proves our salvation. If we say we love God, but we hate one another, we're liars, he points out to us. John goes on and on about this. He repeats himself over and over. But his point here is that love has to be practiced. And as believers in a polarized world, we need to be people who make unity a habit. It's something we need to practice day by day by day. It means that we repent when we failed, we ask for forgiveness, we're willing to forgive others. We have to make these small, daily, sometimes tedious decisions that push us toward unity and away from division. And that's where it can get a little hard. It can get a little boring. When my husband and I got engaged, he surprised me. I was in Denver, and he was in Red Deer, and he was working on a production. He teaches music at a high school, and they were doing a big musical, and he was working all day long on a Saturday, um, working with the kids to get ready for their production. So I'm in Denver. My friend and I go to the mall. My favorite store is Target. It always will be, always has been. 
But one of my other favorite stores is a store called Anthropology. So my friend and I were at Anthropology, and we were looking around, and I picked out some clothes that I wanted to try on. And I went back to the fitting room, and the attendant opened the change room door, and there was Andrew. <laughs> In the fitting room, there were flowers, there were candles, he was holding a ring in his hand, and he said, I have something else I'd like you to try on instead. <laughs> he did well. <laughs> it's a beautiful story of love. It was grand, it was surprising, it was romantic. But guess what? It's 10 years later, and we have three little kids at home who are always demanding, they're always asking for things, they're always talking, they don't ever, ever, ever stop talking, never. <laughs> always talking. They're interrupting our sleep all of the time. My husband and I have work schedules that we're juggling. We have commitments to our friends, to our church, to our community. And a lot of times, Love looks much less like a grand gesture at anthropology and much more like us choosing day by day to practice unity, working together to love and serve our family and our friends and our community. Unity often looks like us simply choosing not to send that gossipy text to a friend. It looks like us being willing to have respectful conversations with one another when we disagree about politics or COVID or secondary theological issues. Sometimes love and the unity that we have to practice can be a little boring. It's usually just us being really careful not to allow the tongue, that deadly evil that the book of James talks about, to do its work. It's us just choosing to walk in the opposite direction. Now, obviously, in our big family of Christians, we're not all going to agree on everything, and we're not all going to get along perfectly. We see this in the Bible. Paul and Barnabas do ministry separately for a while because they're having trouble getting along. However, the Bible makes it very, very clear that unity is not optional for believers. And one of the reasons it's not optional is because Christians loving each other is, is something that's supposed to show the world what our God is like. Christopher Wright puts it this way. He says, when Christians love each other in practical, sacrificial, costly, barrier-dissolving ways, then the love of God, or rather the God who is love, can be seen. Now, of course, none of us is perfect, and all of us fail in all kinds of ways. But sometimes that kind of thinking and speaking can be an excuse for not even trying to obey Christ's command to love one another. For according to John, the world should be able to look at Christians and Christian churches and see something that demonstrates the reality of God. They should be able to see God in action. Unity shows people who God is. Are we doing that well at Prairie? Are we doing that well in our churches? Can people look at us and see what God is like? 
there's a pushback to that because if we're practicing love, if we're working on being united, does that mean that we let untruth slide? Do we not say anything when we hear something that we know is not true? Do we accept everything in the name of love? That's what, what the world might tell us to do. Everyone gets to choose their own truth. We get to choose what's right for us, and we should just show love. Although even out in, in the culture, we don't see that evenly and consistently applied. I would say no. As believers, we don't stay silent in the face of lies. Sometimes that would actually be the most unloving thing to do. And we see correction all throughout the Bible, and sometimes it's quite stern. We see a lot in the Bible about what it looks like to participate in our culture for the common good, for its flourishing. So it's not that we don't have opinions, and it's not that we're never political. It's not that we don't talk about things that might be controversial. But when we decide it is important to speak up, are we doing it in a way that shows people the love of our God. As was mentioned, I'm an American, and our last election turned out to be a bit of a gong show. Um, and because of it, people on social media, Christians and non-Christians, were just constantly screaming at one another. And one of my friends posted this, and it stood out to me. She said, Christian, are you offending the world with your opinions and feelings and your political association before you've ever had the chance to offend them with the gospel. They are not the same thing. Make your loudest statement, your love for Christ crucified, risen, and reigning. Make your loudest statement when you choose to speak up, your love for Christ who loved you first, was crucified for you, is risen, is reigning at the right hand of the Father, and who will come again one day. Our God has shown us a loyal and a sacrificial love. He calls us to imitate him. Wherever we find ourselves, whatever situation we're in, we're to love as he loves. The truth is that we can attempt this and we can strive at this in our own strength till the cows come home. But ultimately, we are not going to have the love that is mentioned in Galatians 5 unless the Spirit is the one producing that fruit in us. The Spirit is the one who needs to fill us. He is the one who enables us to love one another. He does the work of helping us to live out those great commandments, to love God with all that we are, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Our job is to not quench him. Our job is to listen to him, to obey him as he counsels us toward truth, and to then walk in love as he asks us to. So, as we head out today, I'd asked us, I would want us to think about, each of us, where the Spirit wants to work on our lives when it comes to love. Maybe you've been defining it incorrectly, Maybe you're still believing that ultimately you're own and you belong to yourself. And today you need to really come to that deep recognition that actually you belong to Christ and you live and you serve and you love, not for what you'll get out of it, but simply because he's asked you to. 
maybe to practice love, you need to spend some time today reading the book of 1 John. It's a quick read, it's an easy read. And you need to let the Spirit counsel you, maybe toward forgiveness, maybe toward asking for forgiveness, so that you can live in unity and love with fellow believers. And maybe today you just need that reminder that God loves you deeply. He has shown you his loyal, faithful love. He's loved you so much that he was willing to send his own son for your sake. Overall, as we go today, may we do so walking in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time here this morning. We thank you for the reminders of who you are in your very character, that you are a God who has shown us loyal, faithful, sacrificial love, that you're a God who remains true to us even when we fail you. We're grateful for that today, Father, and we thank you for it. As we go today, I pray that you would speak to your hearts, that your spirit would counsel us in truth, toward what it looks like in our personal lives, whatever our circumstances are, to love you with all that we are, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we confess to you, Lord, that we haven't done that. In what we've done and what we've left undone, we have failed at that, Lord. So we thank you that you're willing to forgive us. We thank you that you pick us up and you help us to walk in your way yet again. I pray that prairie would be a place known for the love of Christ that people could look at the people here and they could see a reflection of who you are, of what you've done, and that they would be curious to get to know the God that we serve, the God that we worship. Father, we bless you. We thank you for being present here with us today. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, guys. Have a really good day.